Good morning. Um, yeah, thank you for um, thank you for allowing me to just to serve to serve you for the last few years. Um, I I don't know, y'all. I, I look back on I look back on my walk with <clears throat> with Christ, and and these last the last few years have have really been like the most joyful of of my walk with Him, and and it is. It's a pleasure, it is a joy, it's a privilege and honor for me to get to serve you. So uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for letting me do that. Um, listen, today um, today I'm going to be talking through something um, that the Lord has, has wrecked me over uh, for the last week and a half. And in some ways, it, it's a call to reformation of what the Christian life looks like um, and and the Lord is still working on me with it, um, and and I pray that uh, that He moves in us as a church. So, uh, so one Sunday morning in early 1700s Germany, there were these two men, uh, John Leonard Dobert and David Nitschmann. Uh, they were sitting in church just like we are, uh, just like every other Sunday. Um, this particular week, though, uh, the pastor gets up and he. And he starts talking about this island in the West Indies where the gospel had never been preached before. And so in this island, there, there was an atheist slave owner, and, and he owned about 3,000 slaves. Um, of course, he's an atheist. The gospel has never been preached there. So most of these men, women, children would likely have gone their entire lives, live, die, without ever having heard of the good news of God's great love for them. And so John Leonard and David are sitting in the seats and, and they're being awakened to the reality of life and death for these people. And they decide what had to have been the most difficult decision of their lives. They were going to sell themselves into slavery in order to take the gospel uh, to these 3,000 men, women, and children. And so... The day arrives for them to, to get on the ship and, and to go to this island. And, and their friends and, and family all gather together at the pier, uh, who, by the way, did not all agree with their decision. And, and as the ship begins to, to drift from the shore, John Leonard and David join hands, and they lift their hands high in the air. And they say, May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. What in the world would possess two young men to leave everything behind just for someone else's sake? They had nothing to gain. I think it's a state of overwhelming joy in Christ, a joy that comes from continued obedience to the Lord. See, joy, deep joy, comes from obedience and leads to obedience. And the difficult thing that I think we have to face today as Christians is how do we reconcile the fact that John Leonard and David were responding to the same Savior, the same gospel that we are today, and yet our responses look so different. 
Why do we find our emotions so moved by stories of saints suffering for the gospel and yet find our bodies unmoved and unchanged? Listen, I I don't think it's that these guys had a more dutiful faith than we do. I don't even think it's that they were braver than we are. But I think maybe they did have a joy that we don't have, the kind of joy that comes, again, from faithful obedience to Christ. That's the joy that I want, and that's the joy that we're going to be talking about today and for the rest of our series. So if you have a Bible with you, would you open up to Philippians chapter 1? Today we're beginning a new series in the book of Philippians titled, Joy. This is where we're going to learn more about that very thing, the thing that I think we're all seeking after, true, deep, unchanging joy, which, by the way, I do believe exists. I do believe that there is a joy that doesn't waver with our circumstances. I believe that when we read our Bibles at face value and we see rejoice in the Lord always, it's because there actually is a joy that we can always access. I believe that that's true. I believe that that's true. But the difficulty for me is that my life experience just doesn't match up with what I read in my Bible. And I'm growing more convinced that the imbalance between my life and God's word comes straight out of the way I choose to live my life, the things I do, the things I do not do. And I don't know about you, I don't know if you go through this, but something that I find myself regularly going through is asking myself the question, am I, like, am I doing this thing right? Like, I'm not necessarily talking about the tasks that are in front of me, but the way I live my life. Like, am I doing this right? The The way I budget my finances, the way I budget my time, the way I measure success. What am I chasing after in the end? So entertainment, for instance. I don't think watching TV shows are bad. But I do wonder if they actually contribute anything to my purpose in life. And that's not really a superficial issue for me. I guess really the reality of it is, okay, so when you, when you have entertainment and devotion on two opposite ends of a scale, which one weighs more? Even where I live, I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily to buy a house in a good part of town, one that makes my family comfortable, but is that comfort the purpose of my living situation? Even church, even church is, is coming in to church every Sunday, singing some songs, being encouraged by a sermon, maybe, maybe processing that sermon with some friends, and then finding my life, everyday life, to be generally unchanged. Is that really what this is? Is that what this is supposed to be? Y'all, I'm tired. I'm tired of my life not looking like what I see in my Bible. And it seems that I've been abiding by some different idea of what living means. What I want, though, is more. I want more than what I see right now. And it seems that God is worthy of more. And I could be wrong. I don't think I'm alone in this in our church. Christians, I think a lot of you read the book of Acts and you say, why isn't this what my life with Christ looks like? Non-Christians, I think you look at Christians and you say, they don't really look like Jesus. And the passage that we're looking at today in Philippians 1 is about this very thing, what living should look like. 
And in it, we see one of the most powerful concepts of the entire New Testament. To live is Christ. The author of today's passage is, is going to suggest that all of life is Christ. That our lives should not just be about Jesus, but that they should be Jesus. And I said I've been studying this for a week and a half. It's taken me a week and a half just to get to a point of saying, like, what in the world does that even mean? To live is Christ. I think we have some work to do in understanding it, but I think it's something that we should want. Because when we get this, it makes the lives of people like Paul, the disciples, even John Leonard Dober and David Nitschman, it makes their lives make a lot more sense. So, we will be in chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, primarily. And in order to wrap our minds around what it is we're reading, we're going to read through the text twice. First time through, I want to show you a choice that our author is making. And then the second time through, I want to show you what that choice means for him and what it means for us. Um, but let me, let me pray for us. We desperately need the Lord today. God, would you help us to understand what it means for life to be Christ? God, would you change our hearts? Would you take hold of our minds? Would you draw us close to you? And Lord, please help me. Help me as I show your word to your people. In the name of Christ, amen. Let me give you some background uh, as we dive into this text. Uh, it's really important. An apostle named Paul helped start a church in the city of Philippi. And that church grew into a faithful, flourishing body of believers. But sometime after planning the church, Paul was locked away in a Roman prison because he just kept preaching the gospel and people didn't like that. And so he's away in Rome and yet he's hearing in Philippi that the church has been faithful. And so the Holy Spirit leads him to sit down and write a letter to the church to say thank you for their faithfulness and to assure them of the great joy that he has as he suffers imprisonment for Christ. And so we're going to pick up in verse 21. I'm just going to point some things out to you as we read through these verses. Uh, we'll start here, verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So this is a wildly famous passage for Christians, and it's going to be our main focus for today. In this first reading, like I said, we're going to go through the text twice. In this first reading, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see these two realities that Paul has set up. To live, which he says is Christ, and to die, which he believes is gain. And he's about to talk about these two realities as two options, like two choices that can be weighed out. And so verse 22. Now, if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. I'm torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And so do you see, do you see this weighing process that he's going through? He says, okay, option one is to live. And well, that means work for me. But it means work that has good results. It's fruitful work. It also seems that his living, his remaining on earth is necessary for the brothers and sisters in Philippi. But it's certainly not necessary for Paul because option two, he says, is to die. And that sounds pretty good to Paul. And it's not because death is some sort of escape from what he's going through. In fact, we know that because Paul writes separately to the church in Rome that, that we should actually rejoice in our sufferings. And so we know he's not trying to escape that. 
Dying sounds good to Paul, not because of what he gets to leave behind or lose, but instead what or rather who he gains. In death, he gets to be with Christ. And that, in his mind, makes the option to die far better than the option to live. And something I love here in these few verses, I think a beauty of it is that we get to peer behind the curtain of Paul's mind and we get to see him actually wrestle with these two things. I want to be clear in this, though, when he says, I'm not sure which one I should choose. This isn't a matter of Paul choosing his fate. Uh, it's, it's really important to be clear here. Paul's not suggesting that he has the authority or anyone else has the authority to choose their own death. That would fly in the face of Scripture, including Paul's own writing in 1 Corinthians 6. Your, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Instead, Paul is showing that he's torn between two choices of preference. And so maybe some helpful context there. Like I said, Paul is in prison, but he's awaiting a trial that could mean his death. And so what he's trying to figure out here is, do I want that death or do I want to live? Because those who want death stop living before they ever die. And does Paul want that, or does he want to continue to live while the Lord has him here on earth? By the way, I think it's safe to say in a room this size that that may be some of you today, that some of you walked in here this morning, and you're not positive that you want to see tomorrow. I want you to know that God loves you, and God wants you. He has sent his son for you to have life and to have life in its fullest. And I beg you to choose life. That's, that's what we're going to see Paul choose. Let's go on to our next verse, verse 25. He says, since I'm persuaded of this, that is that it's more necessary for the Philippians for him to stay. I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul chooses to live even though he considers the choice to die to be a far better option, he chooses the needs of others. Remember, he said remaining is more necessary for the Philippians. He allows that need of others to outweigh the option that he considers to be far better than the one for himself. And not only that, but he shows us what he wants for the Philippians as he states. He wants their progress and joy in the faith. That is a backwards choice. Like that makes that doesn't really make sense. And and I don't want to I don't want to lose the simplicity of what Paul has done here. He is he has stepped back, he's looked at two options that are both God glorifying, and he has chosen the one that is more necessary for someone else. He has chosen to die to himself by living. And so the reality that constrains him is the statement that we're going to spend almost all of the rest of our time in. And it's this, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. It all centers around what, what he is saying, this truth that he's holding fast to in verse 21. And so we're going to spend, listen, I would love, I would love to take several weeks and just devote the, that time to the passage we just read, but that's not our reality. So, we're going to focus the rest of our sermon on this one statement, to live as Christ. Because, after all, it is the choice 
It's the choice that Paul has made, and in calling us to imitate him as he imitates Christ, it is the choice that God has called us to make. So this statement, to live is Christ, is one that I, I want to understand. My goal for us is to leave this morning with a much clearer picture of what it actually means, not just to come to some cognitive understanding of it, but to want the truth of this statement to permeate all that we are, to permeate our entire being, to be displayed in everything we do. Again, I believe God has more for us in this life. I think it centers around this. So I think it might be helpful if we, if we look honestly at what this verse is saying, to live is Christ. I don't think we understand it the way we think we do. I'm sure I heard this verse long before college, uh, but for whatever reason, it wasn't until college that I think I began to pay attention to it. When I started to pay, to pay attention to it, I fell in love. Like I fell in love with this verse. What a beautiful statement. To live is Christ. But what I'm realizing is that I think part of what I love about it is that it's just poetic enough that I can cling to it without actually obeying it, without actually doing anything. And I think that's why the verse has become so popular for us as Christians. But what does it mean to live as Christ? A lot of you have heard this so many times that it sounds normal to you. But is it, is it really normal to say that to live is a person? Like, to live is Alyssa, or to live is Kenneth. Oh, that's weird. <clears throat> um, I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's just weird. Like, it, let's be honest. It is weird to say that to live as a person, and I think we need to be confused by it again. But there's something really significant here in this particular phrasing. For Paul, the person of Christ and the act of living are so intertwined that they are inseparable. Christ himself makes up the very fabric of the living experience. And so, in three other places in the New Testament, when Paul calls us to live as Christ lived, that is, as an imitation of Christ. It's, he's doing something different here. He's doing something altogether different. Here he's pointing us to something deeper, that Christ must not only be our model, but our source for living. So we can't just, we can't just live as Christ. We can't just take commands and see Christ as the target and, okay, Every choice I make needs to put me closer to who he is. What we need is for life to be Christ. So it means, yes, I need to see who Christ is and step closer that direction, but I also need to understand that the only reason I'm moving that direction in the first place is because it is Christ in me. And so the way Paul says it in Galatians 2, he says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. That is different. That is different than living as Christ, that is a different reality. And so it leaves us this statement with a couple logical ideas that we really have to sort out. The first is, who is Christ? If, if we're talking about living, being Christ, we need to figure out who Christ is. And then we also need to figure out what does it mean for life to be Christ? So we're going to start with that first question, okay? Okay. Okay. Um, I wrote in here, need a joke. Okay, got it. Um, so first question, who is Christ? 
The word Christ, which means Messiah or anointed one, shows up 17 times in the first chapter of Philippians alone. In one chapter, shows up 17 times. And there are actually more verses in this first chapter that have the word Christ than there are verses that do not have that word. The word Christ is used more just in the first chapter of Philippians than in all of the Gospel of Matthew. And I think Paul is sending a clear message to us here. We need to know Christ. Otherwise, honestly, reading Philippians is like that conversation you get into with someone and they start talking about something you don't know, but you don't want to look dumb so you don't say anything about it. And 20 minutes later, that's the only thing they've been talking about, but you missed your chance to say you don't know it. Paul gives us an opportunity here. He talks about Christ 17 times. And then in the second chapter, he shows us what he wants us to picture when he says Christ. And it's one of the most beautiful passages about Christ in all of Scripture. Next week, we're going to spend more time on it. This week, I only get a couple minutes. But. So this is Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 11. Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God. So I'm going to stop there. That means Christ is Jesus. He is the man who walked the earth and shook Eastern society to its core. He is also God. He is Yahweh the God of the Bible who created the heavens and the earth, who delivered Israel out of Egypt, who set King David on his throne, who commands us to worship him and only him. This is Christ. And he says, as we'll keep going, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited or something to hold on to. But why, why would he not count equality with God as something to hold on to? If he was in the form of God, wouldn't that equality with God be rightfully his to make full use of? That choice right there is a really important theme that informs the rest of this passage. Verse 7, instead, what he did, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What is happening right here? How often do you read this passage or hear about what Christ has done and think, what in the world, like, how is this true? How is this actually happening? Here, here's what Paul is saying. Christ, who is God, chose not to make full use of his divinity, his godness. Instead, he chooses a constant descent for us in love for us. So follow, follow this picture that's in, in the passage here. He is equal with God. He becomes a servant of God, a human at that. And then he descends to earth. He is put to death, and not just any death, a criminal's death on a cross. Why would he do this? Well, Christ himself tells us why in John 10. He says that he came to lay his life down so that we may have life and have it in abundance. He came for our good. And the author of Hebrews writes that it was for the joy that lay before him that Christ endured the cross. What was that joy? That's what we see in verse 9. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. There's no other name like yours. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Christ is glorified. That is his joy. That is the reward of Christ's suffering. It is his joy and glory. Jesus is taken from the humble state that he chose and he is lifted up to an even more celebrated state that he had when he began. He is God in human flesh who chose to suffer for our good and the joy of his glory. This is our Christ. And so our next question is what does it mean for life to be Christ? Well, this is, this is kind of a two-sided coin. On one side, we see what life as Christ meant for Paul. And then on the other side of the coin, we see what it could mean for us. And again, because Paul is going to call us elsewhere in Scripture to imitate him, these two sides of the coin should look eerily similar. And we're going to start, like I said, with Paul. So this is how life was Christ for Paul. We're going to go back into our Philippians 1 passage and we're going to reread it. How life was Christ for Paul. Life was Christ for Paul by fruitful work. That's the first thing we see. Verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And what does he say about life? He says, now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me. And I don't know which one I should choose. Other translations read fruitful labor. Paul is saying that when living is Christ, living is work and This seems to make sense because it's what we see in the life of Christ, too. We see both Jesus' personal work through his compassionate miracles, his teachings, and ultimately in his death and resurrection. But we also see Jesus' desire for more workers in the calling of the disciples. And, And in Matthew 9, when he acknowledges that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So Paul says that living will mean work and that that work is going to be fruitful. It's going to be productive. What's the fruit that this work should produce? He writes about it earlier in verse 11 in chapter 1. He, earlier on, is telling the Philippians, hey, I'm, I'm praying for you guys. And, and he tells them specifically that he is asking the Lord that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, the glory and praise of God. He is asking that they would be filled with the fruit of of right living with God, which includes the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So when living is Christ, living is work, and it is fruitful work at that. It's work that brings the fruit of righteousness, both in ourselves and in others. And so how else now, how else was life Christ for Paul? The second way we see is Life was Christ for Paul through the progress, I'm sorry, for the progress and joy of others. Verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So again, I I need to ask you, based on that Philippians 2 constant descent passage, why is it that Jesus made that choice? Well, it wasn't for his own sake. He was already in perfect unity with the Father beforehand. It was for our sake. It was for our good. And right here, all Paul is doing is he is joining in the chorus that Christ began singing. He's saying that his remaining is for the Philippians' progress and joy in the faith. And what is this progress progressing towards? 
Well, we can progress into the very next verse. Verse 26, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. This progress is towards greater joy in Christ, celebrating and boasting in the person of Jesus. So we see when living is Christ, living is for others' progress and joy in the faith. It is for their increase in the joy of who Christ is. Paul shows us one more sign of what it means for life to be Christ. This third one is through dying to self. So we see verse 23. I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I'm persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you. And so right here, what we see is that dying to self must be a choice. Y'all, this was like, this was the culminating concept of our first reading through this passage. Paul has two choices before him, to live or to die. And he knows that dying would be far better for him because he would gain Christ. And yet it's more necessary for the sake of the Philippians for him to stay. So he dies to himself and chooses to live for someone else's good. And all Paul is doing again, we're laying Philippians 1 and Philippians 2 on top of each other. Paul is just mirroring the image of Christ that he saw in Philippians 2. Christ who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to hold on to. Instead, for our good, he emptied himself. And this is only the beginning of Christ dying to himself. At the pinnacle of his suffering, Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. He took our place on the cross. He died the death that we deserved, and now he is not dead. He rose to life, laid death in its grave, and declared that it no longer carries any sting for us. And now, because we have no need to fear death, we can joyfully die to ourselves in the power of the one who holds the keys of death, as Revelation says. And so when living is Christ, living looks a lot like dying. Living is dying to self, dying to preferences, desires, and if the Lord causes, dying altogether. I don't know if I'm ready for that, Lord. It becomes a lot easier all of a sudden to see why Paul is able to say with such joy that it is far better for him to die and be with Christ. But you can also see his joy in choosing to remain and work. Y'all, the life of Christ is not an easy one, but it is certainly a good one. And it's the one that God has called us to. And so now we have to ask, what does this look like for us? My most joyful seasons of life have been my most obedient seasons. The, the seasons where I'm stubbornly obedient to the Lord. I just refuse, like I refuse to do anything else. Most of you don't really know my, my story. Um, so three years ago, three years ago to the day, uh, I was a touring singer-songwriter, and I was just grinding it out. I'd been grinding it out for a few years, and and I knew that I knew that it was what the Lord had had called me to do. And and yet He began to change my heart, um, y'all. The only thing I knew I didn't want to do when I graduated from college was work for a church. 
that was the only thing I knew I didn't want to do. Um, and, and so three years ago, uh, three years ago, I, I was a few years into this career as a singer-songwriter touring, and, and, and Mercy was my home. I was, like Pastor Spence said, I was serving our church, um, playing guitar and hitting a, a kick drum on the floor here. And then I would disappear for a few weeks and, you know, go tour and then come back. And, and that's, like, that's really what I wanted. It was, like I said, I knew that the Lord had called me to it, but it was also my dream. I, I had a dream of being able to write songs and support a family on it. And, and yet, against my will, the Lord started to change my heart, started to change my desires. And... And slowly over time began to call me into full-time ministry. And y'all, it was really difficult for me to say yes. I can't tell you. The, fir- the first time I met our pastor was at a Panera Bread at Northlake. And I told him, I play music, but I will never work for a church. And all this, all this time, the Lord's been just doing something in my heart. And he was, y'all, he was gracious to take away my dream. The Lord was gracious to take away my dream and to call me into something better. Obedience to him has been sweeter than anything that I'd hoped for myself. And the thing is, I still have no idea what in the world he is doing here. Like, I don't. They asked if I would preach this week, and I said yes, and I don't know what next week means. (laughs) I'm really just not too concerned with that, though. I know that I need to obey him every day, and my aim in life is simply for life to be Christ. The call for life to be Christ is going to play out differently uh, for each one of us. And for most of us, it's never going to be vocational ministry. In fact, some of you need to die to your desire to work in full-time ministry. And most of us need to be in the workplace or at home, strategic spaces for the kingdom of God advancing. But we should all be aiming for the same thing here, no matter what specifically the Lord has called us to. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11, I've brought this up a couple times, to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And we saw his imitation of Christ, what it would look like for Paul, or what it looked like for Paul, for life to be Christ. So now what does it mean for us? So this is how life can be Christ for us. First, again, like I said, these two sides of the coin look eerily similar. First, it's by faithful work. Um, in this section right here, I'm going to be asking you a lot of questions and, and I would ask that you be honest with yourself and with the Lord. So by faithful work, what regular action has the gospel produced in your life? I think we need to begin doing the things that we hear in scripture. And in the context of today's passage, it seems that a good place for us to start would be the work of discipleship. The Philippian church existed because Paul led some people to faith and raised them up in the faith. It's the same command that Christ gives us in the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations. So how are you making disciples? Are you leading anyone to see and become more like Christ? Dads, are you leading your family into God's word? Young professionals, God has called you to the workplace for a reason. 
So are you using that platform to share the gospel with the lost and call them to repent and believe? There are a lot of people here, by the way, who are doing that faithfully. Find someone and ask them how in the world to do it. How else can life be Christ for us? Life can be Christ for us for the progress and joy of others. Paul's choice to live was for the progress and joy of the Philippian church. So what life choices are you making for someone else's progress and joy in the faith? How does your calendar reflect a desire for someone else's joy to increase? What about your heart? Does it bring you joy to see others progressing in the faith? Or does it make you jealous that you're not experiencing the same growth? Christ went to the cross for us to have never-ending joy. And in response to that, Paul took the chains of imprisonment for the Philippians to grow in that joy. So what is your response? How does the reality of your life look different because of your desire for others to experience joy in Christ? The last way, well, the last way I'll talk about that life can be Christ for us. Life can be Christ through dying to self. This encapsulates it all. Paul chose to die to his greater desire of being with Christ in order to remain and work. Listen, if you take, if you take one thing away from Paul's example today, let it be this. He gave up what was better for himself and chose what was better for the gospel. He gave up what was better for himself and chose what was better for the gospel. When living is Christ, living is dying. And y'all, honestly, I'm afraid to go too tangible with this right here. Because at the end of the day, I don't think we have all that much difficulty in sorting out what God has called us to. I just don't think we want to do it. I think that's the bigger issue. We just don't want to do what God has called us to, and so we don't. We read that we should be constant in prayer, but we'd rather get things done, so we pray a couple minutes in the car when there's nothing else we could do anyway. We hear the command to make disciples, but we don't want to share the gospel. We call it the greatest news in the world, and we treat it like it's junk mail. So instead, we bring a couple friends to church every year, and we let the preacher share the gospel with them. We read of royalty dancing in the streets in worship of God and his, and his word, but we want to look presentable on Sunday. So we hold on to our dignity as tightly as we hold on to our coffee cups and the back of the chair in front of us, and we say that we like to worship reflectively. Y'all, when will we stop mourning the fact that our lives don't look like what we see in our Bibles and finally change how we live? Please don't be overwhelmed by this thought. I want to urge you to something painfully simple today. I want to urge you to faithfully take the step that God has before you. Let's set aside just for a moment, set aside our 10-year plans. Even those of you who have 10-year plans that revolve completely around God's mission. We hear stories like the one of John Leonard Dobear and David Nitschman selling themselves into slavery, and we think, all right, if I really want to be obedient, that's what it looks like. And for some of us, that actually might be true. 
But for others of us, do we really believe that the most faithful next step is to take the gospel across the ocean when we haven't even taken it across the street? Mercy Church, please don't stop dreaming of mighty works for the Lord all around the world. A gospel awakening in the city of Charlotte that reaches the ends of the earth. But let us refuse to equate dreaming with obedience. May we no longer be pleased only with great vision for the years to come, but let us also be stubbornly obedient in the hours that come before. I don't know. I don't know how many of you saw this this week, but there was a young missionary named John Allen Chow who had been on mission in India. And while he was there, he learned of a tribe uh, who inhabited the North Sentinel Island right off the coast of the Indian Ocean. Um, This tribe had encountered virtually no contact with any other civilization. They'd been totally isolated for tens of thousands of years. And of course, that meant they had no access whatsoever to the gospel of God's great love for them. So what John did while he was in India, he spent years studying more about the tribe. And he learned, as he studied, of others who were killed just for coming into their vicinity. But he knew they had to hear about their created purpose. So John put together a gift basket. He had some local fishermen transport him to within a mile of this island. And then he canoed the rest of the way all to reach this beloved tribe. And he was met his first day with attack, an arrow hitting his Bible. And after escaping back to the fishermen who had dropped him off, he returned the next day in hopes of eternity shifting. And John gave the fishermen, before he got off the boat, gave them a few letters and instructed them to leave for good because he would get off the boat to stay this time. And we don't really know. We don't know what John's last interaction was with the Sentinelese. But what we do know is this. The very next day, the fishermen saw the body of John Allen Chow being dragged across the beach by the tribe's people and buried. This was last Saturday, November 17th. John was from Alabama. And among the letters he left behind for his friends and family, he wrote this. It's going to show up on the screen. You're not going to be able to read it. So let me read for you. You guys might think I'm crazy in all this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Please do not be angry at them or God if I get killed. He knew what he was getting into. Rather, please live your lives in obedience to whatever he has called you to. And I'll see you again when you pass through the veil. Just like John Leonard Dobear and David Nitschman, John was compelled by an overwhelming joy in Christ that comes from continued obedience. Do you think that John moving to India, do you think that him canoeing to an isolated tribe was his first experience in obedience? God is worthy of what John chose and more. Don't get me wrong about that. But it's not just about the action. It's about obedience. It is about faithfulness to Christ. And he understood that. John understood that, which is why he urged others simply to obey whatever God has called them to. So I ask you again, what is the next step that God is calling you to? 
And how can you most faithfully take that step? Let me pray for us. You can get yourselves into a posture of humility. When we say prayer, we often think speaking. Prayer is not always speaking. Prayer is sometimes listening. So why don't you why don't you engage conversation right now with the God who hears you and speaks to you and ask him, Lord, what are you calling me to? What are you calling me to here? I was, as I was thinking through this, there were like three things that came to mind for me and the Lord told me just to do one. Set aside, let's set aside our 10-year plans. Let's look to the Lord and seek to faithfully follow whatever the next step is. Lord, we are listening. We want to know what you're calling us to. And we repent for not wanting it. Christ, we love you. Amen.